Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Yeah, we're going to talk about Alice Notley's Jack would speak through the imperfect medium of Alice. And Sparrow, I guess you had some kind words to um, set this ball down or up or across the landscape of our time. I wrote a little speech, so I'm going to deliver it. The first time I saw Alice Notley, I won't say I really met her, was while I was studying with her husband, Ted Berrigan, at the City College of New York in 1983. He brought her in as a guest star in one of our classes, and she read. Alice was beautiful, diffident, perhaps sad, a great poet, with a dream world presence. And then for a six-month period in 1985 and 1986, I studied with her at the St. Mark's Church in Manhattan, and uh, that happens to be the class in which I met my wife. Uh, Everything Alice says in her conversation is both deeply considered and off the cuff. She's almost unique in this way, and that quality is in her poems, too. She was born in 1945 in Bisbee, Arizona, but grew up in Needles, California. And I printed out like one paragraph of her life story from the... um, Wikipedia, because uh, my wife doesn't want me to use too many uh, pages up from the printer. Notley left Needles for New York City to attend Barnard College in 1963, desiring an escape from the isolation of her hometown. She received a BA from Barnard in spring of 1967 and left New York City that fall for the fiction program at the Iowa Writers Workshop. I never realized she was in the fiction department. She was the only woman in her genre and one of two in the entire graduate writing department. Notley cites, in part, a reading by Robert Creeley as early inspiration for her move towards poetry. Anyway, that's about where my... uh... And she's been living in Paris since 1992. That's my life story of Alice. And Sam, you have a history with Alice. I don't. I actually have, yeah, I have a surprising non-history in that, you know, I was living in New York through that, but she was mostly in Paris at that juncture. She had a a consort. Her husband, I think they married. And he died. I remember seeing Anselm shortly after he died and you know are talking about his experience at any rate i i've never met alice notley yeah oh yeah well she is kind of kind of a hermit she's hard to meet you know she's not a social person i think needles is in the desert i think she grew up in the desert yeah bisbee i've been to it's an old mining town it's the queen queen copper Queen, something like that, enormous, enormous, cavernous, covered, what's this, yeah, not cavernous, but a huge uh, uh, amount of earth displaced, this enormous hole um, that Bisbee was founded on, it was a company town. Where's Bisbee, in Arkansas, that's not in Arizona. Arizona. Yeah, it's about 15 miles, plus or minus, north of the Mexico border in Arizona. But she grew up in Needles. I think she didn't live in Bisbee. Yeah, Bisbee now is a hippie town. It's a hippie town. And then Needles is out toward Barstow. It's on the edge, I think, of Death Valley. Sounds right. I know that Berrigan, and I do recall, met Alice Notley in Michigan. When she was in Michigan, I thought. I thought he met her uh, at the Iowa Iowa. Writers Workshop. Oh, I thought yeah. he taught her there. That was my sense. I mean, when I knew them, when I studied with Ted and with Alice, which was pretty close together, they were living at, I think, 101 St. Mark's Place. They had two kids. 
two boys that were pretty young. I was in their house once or twice. It was a kind of typical tenement house, apartment. Because I grew up in Manhattan, I used the word house to mean apartment. I would say, well, I'm going over to Dennis Brager's house, meaning his apartment, and I still say that. So, you know, they lived bohemian life pretty simple. And now Alice is a pretty famous poet. I think Penguin publishes her books, and she's considered, I believe, a major American poet. Without doubt, surely. When I studied with her, kind of there was the uptown poets and the downtown poets, and they were like two separate universes. And she was very important downtown and I think utterly unknown uptown. That was my sense, anyway. Thing about her work, would you say that the poem we're about to discuss is characteristic of her style? I would say, well, I mean, this is, I think, an early poem and it's characteristic of her early style. And her more recent poems have a different, looser, longer, more almost prose-like style. And I was reading that she, um, in more recently, has um, written epic poems. Yeah, she's kind of famous for reviving the epic. Someone referred to her on the Poetry Foundation website as the American Homer. The Descent of Alette. I think that was her first epic which I think takes place in a subway. Yeah, I think she and Ann Carson perhaps uh, have a, a reapproach to classical literature that gives it a contemporary and an immediacy of verve, for sure. I think I saw Alice's latest book of poems, actually, or a very recent book of poems in a library on 23rd Street you know, sometime in the last year, and I kind of read some of it. And they were lyric poems that wasn't an epic, and they were political, kind of political. I always thought of her as a pretty apolitical poet. So she made it above 14th Street. Exactly. <laughs> so we wanted to look at this major, uh, the, at this poem. I, I don't know if it's if it's representative of the stature to which Alice Notley has arisen, but we're going to look at Jack would speak through the imperfect medium of Alice. And where should we begin, Andrew? Well, I mean, I, I first read this. I read, I read it briefly when you sent it to Sparrow and myself a few days back. I looked at it. Um, I read it in a little more depth today. And just I'm going to um, come at it from beginner's mind here. So I'm not going to say anything profound. But I was, <laughs> I was aware uh, of all of the unexpected turns and unexpected combinations of words. There's, she goes to places and that I, I, I didn't anticipate her going to. And um, even in the first line, so I'm an alcoholic, Catholic, mother, lover. There's so much there. The joining of mother and lover is, um, I would say, unusual. Shouldn't be, but it is. One of... Um, unexpectedness is that even a word i think it is uh, and some of her word choice yeah. is emblematic of this for example in the first answer you think you can peel my sober word apart from my drunken word but peel here um, is not the um peel removing one thing from another um, the definition of peel p-e-a-l is you know i have to yeah. say something uh because i was gonna point this out or I'm worrying about this because I, I got this, I was I who found the poem on Poem Hunter and Poem Hunter is a bunch of like weird losers who like type up poems and send them in. Anybody can send a poem into Poem Hunter. So it's riddled with misprints. So I'm afraid that that peel was the uh, authorship of the, of the transcriber. I don't know. It's my entire reading hinges upon <laughs> this is my fate to ruin uh, like i did this last time with ted's poem when uh, i told you red shift has nothing to do with the universe expanding um, <laughs> okay. well yeah and plus i mean how are we going to heal the peel yeah but keep going anyway because you might be right well it's a, a loud ringing of bells and i just i mean as a as a gendered text 
right, as a text about um, complex womanhood or femaleness. I think this um, unexpected quality is central to the larger ethos that she's after. Um, she genders herself as both male and female, for example. Some of the lines are hard to follow, so there's this unexpected semantic quality. Um, that's all I have at the moment. I'm going to stop and let someone else take over. I'm charmed by this poem. I'm challenged by it. I like it a lot. I'm not quite at a place where I'm ready to categorize it, but nor is the poet. Well, the one thing I would say just to for everybody at home, the use of Jack and Alice, um, the first word and the last word of the title, obviously, uh, not obviously, but Jack refers to Jack Kerouac. Yes. Right. And Alice refers to, let's say, Alice Notley. And it also picks up on what, Sparrow, you noted in looking at the Berrigan poem, Red Shift, that it uses this, uh, shall we say, New York school trope of the first names. Mm. Um, so that's an, that's an inclusive structure. As you pointed out, Sparrow, Alan, uh, Frank, etc. can be, you know, hey, Alan and Frank and... Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, they're all just, you know, folks, right? As uh, last president would say. And so um, I think that's something worth noting. And also, you don't know who they are. You know, it's the first name, so it's not 100% clear. That's one quality of a first name is... You know, it says in that Ted's poem, it said Frank and Alan, and we assumed that it was Alan Ginsberg and Frank O'Hara, but we don't 100% know. And here we don't know for sure that this is Jack Kerouac. But I, yeah, I don't know no, if this we, is I think clear. Actually, I, I would say um, that we do know that it's Jack Kerouac because Alice does mention um, in references to this poem that Jack is Kerouac, Jack. And that also that idea of the poem as a separate from the bundle of coincidence, coincidences that sits down to breakfast, namely the uh, human coil, is a position of new criticism, which certainly Ted and, and Alice and, and maybe the rest of the gang were like, no, you know. Poetry is inimical, is in, inextricable to life, to breath, to mm -hmm. what is human, and that you should not try to peel away the poem from the life. And I think, you know, very much. I mean, she goes right to Jack's jugular vein in many mm -hmm. ways, his biographical jugular vein as a mother lover. You know, which, of course, yeah. we think of mother fucker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I noticed there are, there, are, there are a lot of biographical allusions to Kerouac's life, right? Um, in addition to the mother lover, um, the alco alcoholic Catholic piece, um, the fact that uh, Kerouac in his later 40s, I think, died um, bloated. He looked quite bloated. There's the famous footage of him on firing line William F. Buckley's show yeah um, a young Ed Sanders and also a sociologist from I think City College I'm forgetting the guy's name an Eastern Euro European sociologist and Kerouac you know is bloated but it ended as a perfect black-haired laddie is it lady or laddie see now the type the possibility <laughs> has really no I think laddie I think it yeah laddie I began unnaturally subservient to my mother and ended in the crib of her goldenness. I began in a fatal hemorrhage. Kerouac died, of course, of a bad hemorrhage due to um, alcoholism and ended in a tiny lob's body, perfect, smallest one. So is this poem about soul jumping or some sort of aesthetic, poetic reincarnation from Kerouac to, to the poet Alice? Well, I think that there is a cycle of metapsychosis that is present in the last words of this first stanza, 
um, which would seem to point to something like that, a, a, a weavingness, which, which is interesting, uh, of lifetimes where it's written, you think you can peel my sober word apart from my drunken word, my Buddhist word apart from my white sugar Teresi word, my word to comrade from my word to my mother, but all my words are one word, my lives one, my last to first wound round in finally fiberless crystalline skin. Yes, wound round. Skin wound round. round. My last to first wound. I think it's not wound. It's wound. my My last to first wound round in finally fiberless crystalline skin which is a little bit like Peter Piper picked a pepper. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what's interesting here is the word skein, you know, this kind of feeling of a skin, but it's also a skein, which has to do, I believe, with yarn and knotted yarn, which also circles back to Notley, um, (laughs) you know, to her last name. And also... Skeen in, in its Irish use is also means clue, actually. Huh. Yeah, I think it kind of literally means that the, I think it's pronounced skein. Skein? I'm not sure. But um, I think it like kind of literally means you take the yarn and you wind it around itself or in a kind of uh, ball or in a kind of mass you know, she he's saying like something like my lives are wound around each other to make a kind of coherent bundle, something like that. Huh. That's how think, I take the sentence literally meaning. Do you think that she's pointing mm-hmm. toward yeah the sort of final manifestation of our evolution as a ball of light? Huh. Well, I mean, then in the next verse. Well, she's just doing a kind of a trick that she... Well, first of all, I guess I want to say that I'm not sure if this is clear to Andrew or to anyone, but the title, I think, means when it says Jack would speak through the imperfect medium of Alice, it means in a literal sense that she's channeling Jack Kerouac. Jack Kerouac is speaking through her the way like a psychic medium will channel, you know, Joan of Arc, something like that. So this is all Jack speaking. Jack is talking. So I'm an alcoholic Catholic mother lover. That's Jack Kerouac speaking through the imperfect medium of Alice. Totally. I think it's so important, yeah, that it's a that it is a work of transcription uh, within the you know within the tradition that goes back to our beginning, but also is you know manifest, for example, in <clears throat> one of our former podcasts, William Blake. You know, who did uh-huh. all his prophetic books in a state of transcription or, you know, hearing voices. You definitely um, encounter a Kerouacian poetics here um, in the absence of punctuation, in the um, use of wild enjambment. You think of Kerouac's scrolls and, you know, how his um, editors were challenged by the absence of conventional grammar. Um that's why I had asked if this was characteristic of Alice Notley, because it yeah, it was so reminiscent of Kerouac in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's not unlike Alice's poems, but maybe in this one she's being a little extra Kerouacian. I think one of the questions that I had reading the poem is, how serious is she about the title? Is she actually truly channeling Jack Kerouac? And it's not impossible that she is. Well, she does use the subjunctive would speak, not Jack speaks through the imperfect medium of Alice, which is actually like a totally terrific, subtle, grammatical gesture toward, you know, and really respecting the history of transcription as a process, as a, as a poetic practice. Um, so she's saying Jack would speak Although, you know, it's sort of tricky, would speak if, you know, there's a sort of, the um, you know, what is history, but the examination of if. 
But what what does that mean? Jack would speak through if he could. And also, I I, I want to point out the humor in the title, which I think sets the tone for the poem. And Alice is funny. She has a sense of humor. So, in other words, if if she called the poem, Jack is speaking through me, then the poem would be very literal. But she says Jack would speak through the imperfect medium of Alice in this kind of Victorian phrase. Nobody uses this phrase anymore with this kind of false humility, like, well, I'm not the greatest uh, medium. I'm doing my best. So that sets a whole level of uncertainty, whether she's just kidding about Uh that she's actually channeling Jack. And I think that uncertainty, that ambivalence, which also I was kind of talking about in Red Shift in Ted's poem, uh, you know, I think is kind of key to the poem that is this, you know, a real act of spiritual, what's that called? Spiritualism. Or is it, you know, or is it just a, a, a New York school joke? Clairvoyance, isn't that? Clairvoyance? I think clairvoyance is using supernatural powers to um, change reality and or to see the future, no? Yeah, well, voy, voix, it comes from voyant. It's French, clairvoyant. It means to see clearly. It means seeing clearly. So I think it implies that it has to do with seeing, not with channeling. I don't know what the word, official word for channeling in I mean, if I were going to do clairvoyance, I'd yeah. want to do it through a fiberless, crystalline skein. You know, that's <laughs> what I would. I mean, is that an instrument of clairvoyance, the crystalline skein? Is there some sort of implement for seeing clearly, like a, looking into a crystal ball or the use of crystals? I know in spiritualism there are various instruments, right, technologies that are used. Yeah. I never heard of skein. I mean, I think there is some kind of tradition of women weaving, having some kind of mystical meaning, like the three fates, they weave our life, and then when they snip it off, uh, we die. Or Penelope waiting for the return of Odysseus. It's interesting, yeah. Well, I think this imperfect medium is also slightly like women are an imperfect medium relative to men. Historically, there's that kind of um, rant carried over for the last 5,000 years. I guess eight. How many thousands of years, Sparrow, we went over this? We figure the whole uh, fix was in like 6,000 years ago. Five or 6,000 years ago, plus I or mean, I, I date it to the beginning of writing. I think that the yeah. beginning of writing might be the beginning of the patriarchy. And that is what, about 3,400 BC? Right. Gilgamesh. The Fertile Crescent, ironically. Yes. But yeah, that is a good point that I was going to also think about was um, here she, you know, because if you look her up on Wikipedia, they count her as a feminist poet. And here she is channeling a man. So speaking as a man. So there's a this kind of confusion or interesting. She's really taking a man's position, but pretending to be subservient to him. I, yeah. Oh, right. It is this. It is like if you're writing down that which the spirit of Jack is shooting at you, then you're subservient. You're a, you're a catcher, not a pitcher. You're an imperfect medium. You're only a woman, not perfect like men. I don't the thing I, I wanted to ask Andrew is yeah. whether to your Catholic self, that phrase imperfect medium resonates. It does. I think that Eve, wasn't Eve subservient to Adam because of the rib thing, or I I don't know. I don't see the subservience. I don't see the power dynamic that you two um, have located. I see it as a feminist text in that she's claiming feminine and masculine parts of herself. And I see that as the great act of gender liberation. Just as um, Sparrow, you had said in a previous podcast that you feel masculine and feminine, that you have parts of you that are manly and parts of you that are womanly, I suppose. And that yeah, the, the phrase from the Berrigans, the sonnets, is marvelous, feminine, tough. Yeah. That, and that tough. is the phrase. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. 
Hey, and I see some of that multiplicity here. I, I see um, I see this as a feminist text again, in that she's claiming multiple sex gender categories, um, in most centrally Kerouac, but also her own. Where do you see the feminine in it? Because it seems to me it's all Jack speaking. Oh. Well, no, his mom. I mean, the relationship of Jack to his mother, she is the feminine figuration. I mean, there's there's a kind of an implied male-female duality. There's plenty of that in the poem. Yes, that's what i A I'm... lot of this versus that. I'm not this, but I'm that, and I'm not that, but I'm, you know, that kind of categorization, actually, which, you know, she notes in the last stanza, you know, a few lines before the end, this idea of the categorizers, mm-hmm. um, you know, which I would also pick up in the first stanza, you pedant and you politically righteous and you alive, you think you can peel my sober word from my drunken word. And on the level of the word, I'm aware of the fact that many of the words and phrases in the poems could exist comfortably in either male or female language games, like fatal hemorrhage or Mm. bloated suggests Kerouac's alcoholism, but it could also be suggestive of pregnancy or 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 changes in female metabolism. Fatal hemorrhage suggests childbirth. Particularly because she says, I began in a fatal hemorrhage <laughs> and ended in a tiny love's body, perfect smallest one. That so it, it does that. seem like fatal hemorrhage. Well, I think that's what I was going to say before is like she's doing a little trick after the skein uh, line where she is reversing uh, uh, Jack Kerouac's life. So she's just simply reversing the reality she says i began as a drunkard and ended as a child well actually he began as a child and ended as a drunkard oh, um, i began I've... as an ordinary cruel lover and ended as a boy who read radiant newsprint well actually the other way it is really he began as a boy and ended as a cruel lover father was a printer right his father in lowell massachusetts oh is that a... right yeah he ran a printing press i didn't know that and in a way that kind of chiasma or that reversal is kind of connected to clairvoyance in that it's an unclear vision. Um, It's a reversed vision. She's seeing things in in a state of reversal, Um, you know, which obviously that's the way we see is we take in an impression and then put it the right way around in our brains. And so she's doing that. She's not complete. She's reversed. She's got it reversed. And so I guess going back to that idea of a gender element, she is reversing herself into Jack in order to speak his, you know, word, which is the, you know, which is the big elephant in the poem, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, also, I think she's pointing out how how uh, Jack's life was a kind of circle that in a way a person who becomes an alcoholic and ends up living with his mother <laughs> dies living with his mother no but I think he he died living with Stella right it was he lived with his mother till she died and I then St Petersburg Florida full time and that's where he died living with Stella right living with his like high school girlfriend yeah so he you know but anyway he did sort of like start out with his mother and end with his mother, start out as a, you know, a little baby is like a drunk. Babies can't sit up. You mm. know, they act like they're drunk. Toddlers fall over. And and Jack ended up the way he started. And I think, you know, and you you are born in a kind of fatal hemorrhage. And, and in his case, he died in it. I think she's a little bit talking about how by reversing it, you're telling the truth. And then I think also she's making some kind of spiritual point that when you die, you're born, and when you're born, you die, something like that. Which, uh, the reference to Buddhism in the first stanza primes the reader for that possibility. Just to go back to St. Petersburg, Florida, as I recall in some biography I've read of Kerouac, he had a a desk in front of a mirror, excuse me, in front of a mirror, in front of a window, like there was a window to his right, and he would 
he would drink a beer and then throw it out the window. And when he <laughs> died, there was an unmagic mountain of empty beer cans out his window. Wow. Yeah, That's you can crazy. imagine. <laughs> I, wish I, ha- I wish I had one. I would sell it on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> Make some coin. You know what I'm wondering about is the final stanza. Unless I'm misinterpreting this poem, which is quite likely. She's, <laughs> she's admonishing um, a third individual, the you. Yes. Is that correct? But you, you can only take it when it's that one. It reminds me of Ted's poem in some ways, Red Shift, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I How do you mean? yeah, I agree. The I think you... that's why this was a terrific poem to choose. It's a nice compliment. Not some other one. Or you say, he lost it. As if I, I so nothing, could ever lose the word. But when there's only one word, when you know them, the words, the words are all only one word, the perfect word. My body, my alcohol, my pain, my death are only the perfect word. As I tell it to you, poor sweet categorizers, listen, every me I was and wrote were only and all gently that one perfect word. Hey, you did a good job of reading that. Yeah. Who do you imagine this you, the second person that's being admonished here? Is that is that the uptown or downtown poetry scene? Is She's already copped to herself as the imperfect medium. Mm. And I don't see why it, why it would be implausible that she's speaking through Jack to herself. But you... You can only take it when it's that one and not some other one. I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. It just it's an, it's an intriguing final stanza. Sparrow, do you have an angle on it? Or you say he lost it. I say Jack Kerouac lost it. Yes, yeah, exactly. As if I, Jack, I so nothinged. Jack is is nothing. He's dead. That's a sort of Shakespearean nothing is really. Oh, yeah. I could ever lose the word as if I could ever lose the word. But when there's only one word, when you know them, the words, you know, for me, that also is a Berrigan timbre because of his evocation in Red Shift of the pronouns. I am only pronouns, but I am all of them. Mm, yeah. I love where you're going, Sam. I guess I thought initially that this was a response to poetic scholasticism, like the rules of what you can and can't do. And I know among the second generation of the New York school, there's a real orthodoxy there in terms of what's allowed and what isn't, just based mm. on based upon the research I did when I wrote that Three New York Poets book. You're not supposed to like the beats, for example. Um, You're supposed to name your friends. Um, You're supposed to try to write an endless long poem at some point. The poetry has to feature New York. It's a real catechism in some ways. Dig it, man. Totally. Which this this poem is breaking with. She, She loves the beats. She loves Jack Kerouac. And she doesn't mention New York at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's very intriguing. It's very intriguing in that sense. And also when you look her up on Wikipedia, which I had never done till you know, five minutes before this podcast, uh, it's like in the third line, it says, uh, Alice has always said she does not consider herself a New York school poet. Well, there you go. <laughs> I think also, you know, going back to your point, or I guess we're in that point, Andrew, I mean, she does say, tell it to you poor sweet categorizers so she is that you is not necessarily just alice Mm. categorizer the separator you know and she is separating herself as the medium from jack but she is jack and jack is the medium for her writing this poem because it's his information right his you know she's harvested it Uh, But this idea of the categorizer, you know, is interesting for me, in part because this morning I was thinking about this poem while I was quartering wood with Mm. my sledgehammer, and I deal with knots all the time. Mm. You know, you you get a section of tree, and you have to look at it. If you spend like 10, 
15 seconds, like carefully looking at it and saying, where are the knots? Yeah. Where am I going to hit this? You can reduce your work um, tremendously. You know, and you, you can, can really, the, you can hurt yourself if you hit that knot, right? It could come bouncing off and the blade could come into, like actually my father, when he was 19 or something, he uh, injured his knee chopping wood and he still has that injury. You know, it, it ended up causing uh, Paget's disease. It was like kind of a central, he couldn't go to the army because of it. You know, it was kind of a central uh, fact in his life because he wasn't watching those knots, presumably. Dig it, man. Because, I mean, the flesh and the bone of the ankle, it ain't much, man. Like a yeah. tree is, is much more strongly knit. So if you're applying a blow to a log and it misses and hits your ankle, you know, you're, you're on the way to the hospital. But the point is that knots are really hard to break apart. They're really hard to criticize. They're really hard to separate. Mm. They're very difficult to break it apart so you can see what's there in the wood. Mm. You know, a, a, a good poem should be naughty. Yeah. And her poem, naughty. her name is kind of the uh, adverbial form of the word not. Like, she writes notly. Yeah, she which writes, is a yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the word would be notily, I think. Notily, not K N O T T I L Y, I think is a word, notily. Now, here's an unanswered. Oh, well, it's, yeah, yeah, to be naughty, yeah. This might be an unanswered, um, but did she, um, in part, move to Paris to be free of the American literary scene and the New York poetry scene? Was there some aesthetic motivation? Um, who knows? But one thing that occurred to me is this. Alice Notley, based upon your description of her, or based upon the Wikipedia description, was to um, the New York school, as Kerouac was to um, beat poetry, in that he felt increasingly uncomfortable and resistant with the categorization of um, being a beat poet. Mm. And um, there's that, uh, maybe it was the biography Sam was alluding to, Memory Bathe. The biography oh, yeah. of Jack Kerouac, or maybe it was something um, Ann Charters wrote. But someone made a someone who knew him made a claim that um, being the king of the beats really killed him. Mm -hmm. That it, it 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 led to a great deal of stress. He was inundated with silly questions from reporters and fans, and that he really wanted to try to dismantle what I guess he had created in this um, aesthetic movement. That it was suffocating hmm. I, I see a parallel with um, this poem if i'm reading it correctly but but that that's just a very small corner of the poem one piece of the knot <laughs> yeah i just looked up the word naughtily it doesn't exist there's the word naughty naughtier naughtiest and naughtiness but it doesn't seem to, i was think i was wrong when i said there's a word naughtily but um i uh I think you're on to something, Andrew, about that. I think that's an interesting... And, of course, that's also the feminist element, is that uh, the New York school is founded by three guys. The second generation is pretty much guys, guys, guys. And then two women came into the scene, Alice and Bernadette Mayer. And now they are considered kind of the top, in a way, because they kind of subverted... And Eileen Miles. So it, it became somehow a matriarchy, uh, the New York school, or, you know, the at least the East Village scene of poetry that I was in. And I was kind of at that moment where it was kind of shifting from the from the founding men to the to the not founding women. But the women were kind of reinventing it. Ann Waldman. Ann Waldman. Yes, I guess she is New York school. And I guess she's second generation. I mean, the well, the guys that I wrote three New York poets about, Sam published three New York poets. My dissertation, Tony Toll, Charles North, and less so Paul Violi. More Charles North and Tony Toll. They have a very um, set idea as to who's second generation, who isn't, <laughs> who's <laughs> who's third generation, but disguised as second generation. 
it seemed like there are a lot of laws and rules governing membership, aesthetically and socially. And the whole thing was a joke to begin with. You know, the idea of the New York School was essentially just a sort of joke on the fact that there was this New York School of Painters. And so they decided to call themselves the New York School of Poets. It wasn't a real true school. There's that terrific painting, uh, line draw, uh, line painting. It's in black and white. Triumph of the New York School. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, Mark uh, Tansley. That's the artist? I believe so. I remember reading somewhere. And maybe it was um, done in the mid-80s, maybe? Yeah, all that kind of categorization stuff, you know, is is a carryover from when we all had baseball cards. I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I had like an okay collection of baseball cards. I remember I had a Roberto Clemente and huh. this guy came over to my house and he he stole it. But I think it's that sort of obsession with keeping score, perhaps. Or collecting, too. You yeah. know, getting a... I want to have every book by every New York school poet. I think at one time I wanted that. Come to I think have, of- you know, I have a New York school collect. I, I, I collect um, first editions of John Ashbery books. Oh, uh-huh. I've had half of them. Anyway, How many is that? How um, many is half? Well, I mean, I have maybe about 10 first editions signed that I've gotten over the years from rare book dealers and the strand, and, you know, and uh-huh. from himself. I mean, I, I want to answer Andrew's question about the categorizers, because, you know, who are the categorizers? Because I didn't get to that, and I do want to talk about it, because I was thinking about it. And, you know, one such categorizer is me. Like, I believe that uh, Kerouac started out great, and uh, but he didn't really know how to be a writer. And gradually, he taught himself how to be a real writer, like how to write each word so that it's perfect. And I read, I think his penultimate book, Satori in Paris. And so it's like next to last book where he goes to Paris. He's searching for some distant French relative who's his forebear. And while he's in a taxi, he has Satori. He has enlightenment experience. And it's beautifully written and it's no good. You know, it's an empty book that's beautifully written, as opposed to On the Road, which is a great book that's terribly written. And, and you know, he writes like an amateur in On the Road, but he has the spirit, the kind of propulsion, the determination to be a great writer that makes up, he's got great vision that makes up for his lack of actual literary style. And and this is what uh, Alice is specifically um, attacking in, uh, in this poem, where he says, um, or you say he lost it, as if I so nothing could ever lose the word. Um, in other words, I think that, uh, and a lot of people think that Kerouac lost it, but that's not what Alice is trying to say. Alice is trying to talk about what writing really is. Writing is about, and particularly Kerouac's writing, a lot of people famously say, Kerouac, all his books are one long book. Alice is saying, no, they're just one word. They're one word that he repeats over and over again, more or less the way like a Buddhist monk chants, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. And it doesn't matter if it gets better or worse. That's not what it's about. It's about speaking that word over and over again your whole life. Living the I, I totally, myself, just speaking um, narcissistically, have very much the sense that I'm saying the same thing over and over again. In slightly <laughs> different ways, but I'm just saying the same thing over and over And uh, how do you feel about that, to be a momentary therapist? Well, I mean, when you're in the word or in that saying, you're not outside of it. So you're not exactly saying it over because you're inside of it. And it's 
revolving around you. Um, but then when you step back, you see, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm just saying the same thing over and over. But maybe there's a reason to say it over and over. Maybe yeah, that's I think, see, Alice that would be saying. my take, is I would say some things are worth repeating. <laughs> well, <clears throat> look at how the poem ends, the one perfect word. Well, yeah, and that's, where, and that's what I really want to get to, is the word is the re-articulation, the re-insertion, the re-emphasis on this, the word. And I really wanted to, again, turn to you, Andrew, and, and ask you, what is the word? Well, I would, you know, I, I really fell in love with literature because of Jack Kerouac. Oh. That was my I'm fourth. sorry to insult him, then. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I don't... There's only one of his works that I, that I continue to dip into, and that's Big Sur. I think that's his great novel, but huh. I'm not offended at all. I don't really read much Kerouac anymore, but I am aware of a quotation of his that I'm going to read aloud because I wrote it down. And it, 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 I'm sure Alice had this quotation in mind. One day I will find the right words, and they will be simple. <laughs> And another quotation from Kerouac that I think has bearing is this. Thinking of the stars, night after night, I begin to realize the stars are words. And all the innumerable worlds in the Milky Way are words. And so is this world, too. And I realize that no matter where I am, whether in a little room full of thought or in the small, endless universe of stars and mountains, it's all in my mind. <laughs> are you quoting that from something or you memorized it? Um, I, I had that one committed to memory. Wow. From my the reason, though, and I, and I agree that she probably did have that word set or variations on that word set in mind as Jack was speaking through her. But the, what I wanted to ask you, Andrew, from yeah. your perspective as a... Catholic, what is the word? The word in the in the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was mistranslated. Um, isn't there like a long Catholic and and Christian, I guess, idea of the logos? And I was just wanted to ask you, man, what is the word? Well, it's the primordial word. I I I, I couldn't utter it even if I knew it, but it does begin the gospel according to Mark. In, mm was the word um the liturgy is grounded in the word the liturgy is referred to as the word i don't have much more than that i'm sorry what is your question exactly what is, how does it resonate with me well, as for, a for me it, it goes well i mean yeah i guess i was asking you from two different standpoints one is within catholicism but the other is the persistence and insistence in the Western tradition coming out of the Greek to a certain extent and elaborated upon on this idea of the word. In the beginning was the word. Well, tell us what the word is, dude. And it's and it remains this sort of baffling, dare I say, innuendo that there's something there and yet it's not something that can be brought here to speak of, I mean, for me, I owe, uh, one way in which I approach the word is that the word is the promise. You know, I give you my word. I see. I mean, that's one way, perhaps, that it's, that it's like a spondee. It's something that's to come. It's a vow. It's an oath that the word is the promise. God knows. It's a covenant. <laughs> the word, the covenant, the new covenant. I guess it would be a kind of the word is the covenant. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, sure. I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the one one thing that I also circle back to is the Samuel Beckett poem. What is the word? Do you remember that poem, Sparrow? No, I don't know that poem. I don't think that that poem plays a significant role in that work that we did together with Omar Perez. In oh. the Cuban cabaret. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have that poem um, here in front of me and huh. could read some of it, but uh, it's a beautiful Yeah, word. read it. Yeah. 
Folly. Folly for two. For two, what is the word? Folly from this. All this. Folly from all this. Given. Folly given. All this seeing. Folly seeing all this. Seeing. Folly seeing all this. This. What is the word? This. This. This, this here, all this, this here, folly given, all this, this here, for to, what is the word? See, glimpse, seeing to glimpse, need to seem to glimpse, folly for to need to seem to glimpse what? Oh, yeah. What is the word and where? Folly for to need to glimpse what, where, where, what is the word? There, over there, away, over there, afar, afar, away, over there, a faint, a faint, afar, away, over there. What, what is the word? Seeing all this, all this, this, all this, this here. Folly for to see what? Glimpse, seem to glimpse, need to seem to glimpse, a faint, Afar away over there, what folly for to need to seem to glimpse a faint afar away over there. What, what, what is the word? What is the word? Hmm. Beautifully read. Yeah, that's what I said. So, um, so Maybe the word the is what? Since uh, he keeps <laughs> saying what is the word. That could mean that the word is what? <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, I thought a lot about, you know, I'm a literal thinker, as you may have noticed. And um, I was thinking, what is the word? And I was thinking the word could, in this poem, in Alice's poem, uh, what is the perfect word that he says over and over? And I, one possibility is the word I. Yeah. That's you know, which, which is repeated a lot. Uh, another possibility is... Um, it's the word word, uh, which is also a, a, a motif that repeats over and over. Huh. But the Beatles, you know, they addressed this problem as they addressed pretty much all metaphysical conundrums. And they had a song, uh, say the word and you'll be free. Say the word and be like me. Here's the word I'm thinking of. Say the word, the word is love. <laughs> it's so fine, it's sunshine. Say the word, love. So apparently, according to the Beatles, the word is love. <laughs> love but I think that might is, be too yeah. easy an answer. Uh -huh. yeah. There is a fair amount of love in the poem. There is yeah, the poem. I think the poem yeah. is all Did love. What else is interesting for me, at any rate, is this idea of the one perfect word has an echo of a strand or a skine, skein, skine, how do you skine. skine of American poetry that runs through the Midwest and in many ways picks up on some of that kind of Mississippi surrealist spine that runs through America, you know, down into South America, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it, it's the, um, it goes to James Wright and to a collection of essays that a Virginian poet named Dave Smith wrote called The One Pure Word. Huh. And it was a collection of essays on James Wright from Wheeling, West Virginia, on the Ohio River, over there, you know, across the river from, anyway, around in that neck of the woods. And he was teaching, I think, in the 80, in the 70s and 80s, I think he was teaching up the road uh, uh, on 68th Street. At Hunter? And Matt, yeah, he was teaching at Hunter. He was part huh? of the Hunter writing program. Hmm. Um, so that idea of the pure, perfect word is also something that I believe is a siren call to the aforementioned new criticism. The idea that this there's this word 
that is like the platonic realm of idea, the pure, perfect word, uh, a little bit like Williams, not Doc Williams, but uh, the singer, the, the pure, high, lonesome sound. Hank Williams. Hank Williams, yeah. This idea that there's this this pure, this word that all speech is seeking to reflect, channel, whatever, but it's beyond, beyond mind, beyond mm. experience. Huh. It's an actual word, but a platonic word. It's kind of all words are within it or something yeah. like that. Yeah, which I think has something to do with this, you know, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the sound, right? Actually, the universe <laughs> emerged out of a seed syllable. You according know, to, to Hinduism or something. <laughs> yeah, according to people who, yeah, who know these things, yeah. That it emerges out of a sound wave. The huh. sound current, I think, Shabbat would be one word for it. Yeah, I think that my guru says that sound is first as the most maybe etheric vibration and then light and then matter but there might be intervening uh categories but i think i remember some yogi or some you know young yoga student saying to me in the beginning god said let there be light that means that before the light was the word of god saying let there be light the sound predated the 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 light, just like the yogis say. Uh huh. But I don't. I have no firm opinion about the origins of the universe. I just want to go on record as saying that. <laughs> <laughs> two things. I have two two more things that I w would like to throw into the pot. Shall I do it or? Yeah. 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 The one is bear again. I feel that there's a little bit of a little touch of Harry, a little touch of Ted in the night in that Jack Kerouac and Berrigan are both come out of a Catholic ethos. Mm. You know, they're part of, you know, Jack is French Canadian, uh, Berrigan is Irish American, but they both have that Catholicism and then also both have that addiction. You know, they're both addicted, you know, in different ways. And so both. I also I feel the I feel a bit of shadow of, of Alice speaking in a kind of ventriloquism through Jack and to her, to us, but also Berrigan, her being uh, married to Jack, uh, not to Ted, not Jack, perhaps, you know, that's just some psychological. I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And about really all those East Village poets, or all the ones I knew, they were all speed freaks at the same time. You know, they were all in this dangerous game of drugs and too much drinking, and they didn't have to work because it was so cheap to live back then. And they were kind of destroying themselves. And then Alice extricated herself from that scene eventually and stopped taking speed, I think, and kind of... You know, anyway, she was always a mother, so she had to keep things together even then. But I think that whole world of kind of doomed bohemian uh, angels, to use uh, one of uh, Kerouac's terms, she was thinking of and and lamenting, though celebrating it. <laughs> yeah, the kind of what we call now the suicidal white male is a demographic. <laughs> Yeah. Mm, right. What was your second point? Oh, yeah. Dudes, I found a recording. Oh, great. Oh. Alice Notley reading the poem. Yeah. Nice. And, it's a, and it's a good reading and has a lot of information in it. I, I would love to play it. It's yeah. cool. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. <laughs> Say the word and set you free. I hate that song, too. <laughs> Like I hate okay. all Beatles songs, but that one might be the very worst Beatles song. <laughs> this is called Jack Would Speak Through the Imperfect Medium of Alice, and the Jack is Jack Kerouac, and the Alice is Alice Notley. Jack Would Speak Through the Imperfect Medium of Alice. 
So I'm an alcoholic Catholic mother lover. Yet there is no Swedish nectar, no fuzzed peach thing, no song sing, but in the word to which I'm starlessly, unreachably faithful. You pedant and you politically righteous and you alive, you think you can peel my sober word apart from my drunken word, my Buddhist word apart from my white sugar to res word, my word to comrade from my word to my mother. But all my words are one word, my lives one, my last to first wound round and finally fiberless crystalline skein. I began as a drunkard and ended as a child. I began as an ordinary cruel lover and ended as a boy who read radiant newsprint. I began physically embarrassing, bloated, and ended as a perfect black-haired laddie. I began unnaturally subservient to my mother and ended in the crib of her goldenness. I began in a fatal hemorrhage and ended in a tiny love's body, perfect smallest one. But I began in a word and I ended in a word and I know that word better than any knows me or knows that word probably, but I only asked to know it. That word is the word when I say me bloated and when I say me manly, it's the word, that word, I write perfectly lovingly, one and one, after the other one. But you, you can only take it when it's that one and not some other one. Or you say, he lost it, as if I, I so nothing, could ever lose the word. But when there's only one word, when you know them, the words, the words are all only one word, the perfect word. My body, my alcohol, my pain, my death are only the perfect word as I tell it to you, poor sweet categorizers. Listen, every me I was and wrote were only and all, gently, that one perfect word. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.